Today's podcast is brought to you by the Belter Companies, Navigator Group Purchasing, and eMenu Choice Point of Sale. Welcome to Tips from Trestle. This podcast is dedicated to discussing the senior living industry with a unique focus on food, hospitality, and leadership. I'm your host, Aaron Fish. As a 25-year veteran of the hospitality industry, I've focused my work on creating exceptional experiences for the customers we serve. My goal for this podcast? Educate, inform, and inspire leaders in senior living to bring food and hospitality to the front of mind in our industry. Let's bring the innovative and passionate spirit of hospitality to everything that we do. For the residents, families, guests, and employees we serve each and every day. So what are we waiting for? Let's get to it. Two-time Emmy winner David Page changed the world of food television by creating, developing, and executive producing the groundbreaking show Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. Before that, as a network news producer based in London, Frankfurt, and Budapest, he traveled Europe, Africa, and the Middle East doing two things covering some of the biggest stories in the world and developing a passion for some of the world's most incredible food. Once back in the States, Page pursued his passion both personally and professionally. Show producing Good Morning America, his substantial food coverage included cooking segments by Emeril Lagasse. Creating diners, drive-ins and dives and hands-on producing its first 11 seasons took him deep into the world of American food. Its vast variations, its history, its evolution, and especially the dedicated cooks and chefs keeping it vibrant. His next series, The Syndicated Beer Geeks, dove deep into the intersection of great beer and great food. It is those experiences, that education, the discovery of little-known stories and facts that led Page to dig even deeper and tie the strands together in his new book, Food Americana. David, thanks for joining me today on Tips from Trestle. Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So I'm excited to talk to you. First of all, um, I love diners, dine-ins, and drives. It's kind of one of those uh, iconic shows. So, But I want to know how you got into food TV. I mean, you started in the news business, and so Mm -hmm. obviously you've created a a passion for food. So I'm curious to kind of get a little bit more about your backstory. Well, I've always liked to eat, um, but... (laughs) I got into food television, uh, ironically, uh, so I wouldn't starve. Uh, it, it was what made itself available to me. I, I had been, uh, my last network gig was was at ABC, where I was um, senior producing, line producing uh, Good Morning America. And uh, that that was a killer. <laughs> and uh, literally the, the week, uh, there were three of us who, uh, subject to an executive producer, took turns doing the show for the week. And during that week, you'd get like a total of 12 hours of sleep. So um, I was recruited at that point to uh, become the uh, uh, executive producer and senior vice president of a home shopping channel that was out oh, in wow. Minnesota. And I thought that'd be interesting, a complete change of career. I, I took the job. I hated the job. <laughs> I left the job. And I opened a production company and um, nobody was buying what I was selling. 
Um, and I called Al Roker, who had worked for me on the Weekend Today show when I ran that. And he had a production company. I said, you got any You got any work you could throw my way? And he said, yeah, I'm doing a lot of stuff for the Food Network. Why don't you do some of that for me? Just I'll subcontract it. So I started doing some stuff for the Food Network and uh, enjoyed it. And, you know, it, despite the fact that I liked it, to eat at that point i had no particular expertise in food but the 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 journalism business has always been especially in television a matter of learning stuff you don't yet know and then you know it right um so that went well and uh al agreed with me when i said look i'm not going to make significant money uh with you pleasantly simply taking a cut. <laughs> so I'm going to pitch the network myself. And I did, uh, and I did, and I did, and I did, and it, they weren't buying anything I was pitching. And uh, finally, because I had done something on diners when I was working through Al, uh, I was on the phone with this programming executive who was kind enough to take my calls, which is 90% of the battle, and, and I was pitching more things she was turning down. And, and finally, she said to me, don't you have anything about diners? And I said, oh, oh yeah, I'm, I'm developing this show called Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives. And I told her all about it. And she said, you know, that sounds good, which was the first time she'd ever said that about a pitch of mine. She said, this was like late on a Thursday or maybe even a Friday. And uh, she said, um, get me a write-up on Monday. We have a meeting on Tuesday. So I got off the phone, uh, and I was conflicted. On the one hand, I was thrilled that she was interested in something. On the other hand, I was not developing a show called Diners Driving Dives. <laughs> I had literally made the name up out of thin air. When oh, wow. She so I spent the weekend calling around, uh, researching a possible show, uh, sent her a, a, a what you call a one sheet, a pitch document on Monday. They had their meeting on Tuesday. And shortly thereafter, they commissioned a one hour special, not, not a series. Um, and as I put the facts together after the fact, um, they had uh, this was the second year they had had the um, Food Network Star contest. And they still naively believed that that contest would actually produce the next generation of Food Network stars. In fact, it turned out that that Al's the only one who, not Al, I'm sorry, Guy is the only one who ever, Guy Fieri, who ever became a star. Um, but they wanted to keep him in front of the public while they worked on a primetime show for him. So they figured, you know, giving him this special would, would be a, a fine way to just... Um, kind of have him appear again wow. and uh we did the special uh it did i think by their terms surprisingly well and then something interesting happened the big boy production companies the big guys that they had asked to present pitches for guys big primetime show submitted those pitches and the network didn't like them oh, uh man. so now they're stuck they want they want to get guy on the air they don't like those pitches. Uh, they've had some success with my special. So they kind of tiptoed into the water and ordered a short season of diners. Uh, after the first few shows did very well, 
one of the executives still wanted to tamp down my expectations and said, you know, this this may be going fine, but it doesn't have legs. We we don't figure this for more than a couple of seasons because there just aren't enough restaurants out there. <laughs> now, I did the first 11 seasons and then left, and now they're into season 40-something. So yeah. I think that executive might have been mildly misinformed. I Yeah, I think he might have been. I mean, why every do you time assume, you Why do you assume it's a he? Uh, well, maybe uh, you're correct. The, that producer uh, was definitely wrong. That's a that show just has so much legs. I mean, it's one of my favorites. Um, well, thank you. I, although I, to be honest with you, I don't know what they're doing with it these days. I I haven't watched in a long time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you. It's usually for me. It's when I'm visiting my in-laws. You know, we're looking for something to kind of have on in the background and watch and. We're watching old episodes. My guess is it's probably some of the ones that you were a part of. So well, my, mine are the ones that at the end, it's it, my logo is a radio tower with the thunderbolts coming out, yep. of it, which I stole from. <clears throat> pardon me, a tattoo on my hip. <laughs> well, those are definitely some of the ones we've seen, and so you know, it's just I think it's kind of a piece of just the food history of America which is one of the other reasons I want to talk to you about. You've got a book out called Food Americana, which you're where you kind of take all of your your experience and kind of create this, this kind of guide, if you will, about food. And so just tell us a little bit about the book, and then I have some questions that our listeners sure. Senior Living might be interested in. Today, I want to tell you about one of Trestle's Senior Living Partners, Elder. Belter is a food service design, equipment, and supply company that has been providing expert guidance to the food and beverage industry for nearly a century. A strategic partner to the most successful food service operations in the country, Belter provides support in kitchen and bar design, equipment procurement and install, and supplies. Their team of senior living food service experts have experience across the continuum of care. From independent living to skilled nursing and CCRCs, Elter specializes in right-sizing new facilities, modernizing remodels, and providing the right food service equipment and supplies. At Belter, they are committed to creating memorable experiences for their customers and their guests. With their top-notch team and a global network of quality supplier partners, their customer-focused approach is built on a foundation of collaboration and decades of industry experience. So thank you for considering Belter for all of your food service needs. Okay. Um, the book, uh, every TV producer thinks he has a book in him. Um, partially because we all believe that nobody understands that it's harder to write for television than prose. Because in television, you can't just sit down and start wherever you want. It was a dark and stormy night, and Oedipus yeah. killed his father. You, you have to look at the material you have, the video and sound that you have accumulated, and then figure out how to use your writing to seamlessly glide from one moment to another in, in that format. So every producer thinks he's got a book in him. Yeah. Um, now, I... Uh, before diners, I developed an interest in the etymology of food because I was in Europe for NBC News as a producer, 
never having expected to be sent overseas. It had never occurred to me. Um, and so I ended up at a big era in news events. Uh, when I first got there, being sent from country I knew nothing about to country I knew nothing about, and I pretty quickly realized that one of the ways, uh, an important way to understand a culture or a country is through its food. A, sitting and talking with people over their food is a, a great conversation lubricant. But beyond that, the food actually tells the story of a place. Uh, Tuscany, for example, eat a lot of wild boar. Well, they do because it was a tremendously poor place. And if you were going to eat it, you had to shoot it. And there were a tremendous um, population of boar in the area. So that became the meat of choice um in strasbourg the the dish uh that is most representative of strasbourg uh which is in france is a uh, a very germanic dish called chacrute which is a pile of sauerkraut topped with big hunks of meat usually pork and sausage well You'd say to yourself, why am I eating German food in France? And then the history of the area um, is reflected in the food in that that particular piece of real estate was fought over and went back and forth between those two countries for centuries. Um, yeah. In Greece, the, the, the concept of the meza, the small plates that everyone shares, is a reflection of of the social culture of that country in terms of people wanting to get together and, and be, um, be involved with each other. And, and it's best summed up in um, uh, a statement that was written down thousands of years ago, I guess, um, from the philosopher Epicurus. And yes, there was, that's where the word Epicurean came <laughs> from, who said to eat alone um, is uh, to to focus on what you're going to eat is like being a wolf who eats alone. What you need to focus on first is who you're going to eat with. So, um, it, it was clear to me that far back that that food has a lot to say about a country or a region, because frankly, most European cuisine is regional, um, and these are regions that eventually came together and became countries. But um, having said all of that, after diners and after, um, uh, well, after years of diners and, and other food-related uh, projects, I was thinking to myself, what do I do next? And I thought, it's time for a book. And I asked the question that had been in the back of my mind for quite a while. What is American cuisine? All of those years that I worked internationally, the presumption was that American cuisine was hamburgers and hot dogs. And, and it's not, although those are parts of it. So I decided to figure out what American cuisine was and where it came from. The bottom line is uh, it's um, a combination of modifications to different cuisines that were brought here by immigrants. Um, Italian-American is not Italian. Mexican-American is not Mexican. Chinese-American is not Chinese. They are individual cuisines that developed here, that were modified here 
after immigrant groups from those countries arrived here and found different ingredients, uh, different availability of ingredients, and quite importantly, figured out what um, Americans who had been born here wanted to eat and modified those who opened restaurants, modified their cuisine to meet that. Um, Chinese American food developed out of the Cantonese food that was brought here in the mid 1800s by the Chinese miners who came here during the gold rush. And much of Chinese food as eaten in China involves um, uh, awful parts of the animal, not awful, yeah. awful parts of the animal that Americans find distasteful to a great extent. And there was a dish created for the Americans called chop suey. Now, there's a great debate about whether or not that was invented here just for Americans or modified here from a dish that existed in China. I tend toward that belief. But it was uh, stir-fried vegetables with proteins. And in China, that would have been um, interior body parts. Here it became chicken, pork, or beef, and it was chop suey that fueled the growth of. And now Chinese a word from our sponsor, Navigator Group Purchasing. The Navigator is the largest full-service GPO that exclusively focuses on the senior living community, and what that means is we provide products and services that help our members provide a great environment for their residents such as like MRO, hospitality equipment, food, business products, as well as technology solutions. We actually surround our members with a level of support unmatched in the industry. Wow, that's it's such a great take and just an understanding of how things have evolved and developed. You know, one of the questions I wanted to ask, you know, in senior living food service where, you know, most of where I operate, um, we do have kind of this coming together of different peoples and different backgrounds. And so what you're saying makes sense. Um, but I'm curious, you know, knowing that, how, how can these chefs that we work with, with these older adults that maybe aren't as familiar with some of these cuisines, how can they kind of tell the story of these cuisines and how can they make these dishes that are unfamiliar to them um, more appealing and more accepting. So that way we can create this better variety well, I, of menus. Yeah. Let me, let me take issue with something you just said. My, my mother-in-law is 104 and a very active 104. Um, she's in um, assisted living where uh, she has her own apartment, but um, meals are available at the dining room. And she rails about the lack of taste in the food. There seems to be this assumption, or perhaps it's a financial imperative, but when you look at the downside of institutional cooking, it's a lack of flavor. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the elderly today, hell, I'm 68. <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm elderly, have grown up with – um the concept of certain ethnic foods, Chinese, Mexican, Italian, um, certainly I think the big three in, in that respect. Yeah. And I'd say step one is simply to try to make a good version 
of the well-known basics of that dish. There, there's no reason that you can't institutionally do beef and broccoli in a way that's appealing. I, I think that one of the real problems with institutional cooking is an almost defensive lack of flavor, not to offend anyone. And I, I think that is selling the elderly population short. You don't lose your interest in eating just because you're older. Um, I don't know that there is a need to introduce an elderly population to food they don't know and like. I think the bigger issue is how to take the benefits of, quote, and I hate the word, but it, it, it's used, ethnic cooking, mm. to the max and provide the variety of textures and proteins. I mean, you can have Taco Tuesday at, at uh, an elderly living establishment and have three different tacos each week. And look, from an institutional standpoint, um, it sure as hell isn't hard to procure the necessary ingredients yeah. for, for that sort of a dish. Um, I, I don't know that I want to try to force a population that's set in its ways into, hey, let's try Persian food this week. I, you know, you're in the business, I'm not, but uh, as someone who has sort of studied, not academically, but I've, I've put a lot of time and effort into learning about food, I'm not sure you want to push boundaries. I, I think you want to realize, however, that the elderly um, want variety, especially since for many of them, um, life has gotten a little less exciting with fewer options. And you can surprise people within the panoply of a certain kind of cooking. I mean, um, you come downstairs and find stuffed shells as opposed to regular old pasta. Hey, it's a dish, you know. B, it's terrific. And C, I think there's an element of comfort food that is necessary um, when when you reach that age. Yeah, um, no, I would agree. And I think a lot of the points you make regarding the, the institutional food is super valid. One of the things that, you know, I've spent my career pushing is we're we need to be working out of a more traditional restaurant mindset and creating menus and dishes and service models that in, invite that into our communities, as opposed to what most people think of when they think of senior living and institutional food. And so it's a, it's an interesting take you have though, about just introducing some of the basics and seeing how that can drive and, do, and doing them well. Yeah. And by the way, you talk about, you know, I would love, and again, I, I have no knowledge of the financial reality of running uh, any kind of um, elderly facility. So what I'm about to say may be insane, but why can't you have an omelet bar at breakfast? Yeah. Why does breakfast have to feel like, ugh? Mm. you know, there, there's an element of excitement that, that should exist in what we eat. And that doesn't have to be expensive. I mean, in all candor, in my own kitchen, I've been going through a period of time um, where I have been focusing on what to do with cheaper cuts of meat, the yep. old poverty cooking, um, you know, uh, beef is extremely expensive these days in its, um, higher end forms. Um, and partially because of the money, I mean, 
thank God I can afford a steak, but it, it hurts me to to pay that kind of money. I've been doing a lot of braising lately. I've been yeah. doing a lot of short ribs and um, secondary cuts and skirt steak. Um, and you can do so much with that. Yes. Um, just as you can do so much institutionally with a pan of chicken thighs. You know, yeah. that's just begging for flavor to be added. <laughs> um, I, I think one of the things that happens in institutional settings, not just with the elderly, is there's kind of this rotation that's developed. It's on an Excel spreadsheet of the seven things we make. Um, you know, with the same yeah. ingredients, you can make 21 things. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a matter of pride and care. No, and, you know, that's one of the things when I talk to operators all the time is that, you know, when they do have concerns about costs and their expenses, I, I go back to exactly what you said. You know, it's not variety in your ordering and your purchasing. It's variety in how you prepare it. You could, like you said, you could buy five to seven different proteins and you probably have a good solid month's worth of great meals. That's it. That's all you need. And so, um, and the, the concept of being, you know, bringing life to the dining room, bringing life to the community through food. I mean, that's probably the most important thing for me. It's, you know, that's the most interactions and the most touches that we have with those residents every day. We we know they're coming to meals, right? We don't know about all the other engagement activities, but that's happening. And so and trying to create that is so important. I would also say, I think an area, and again, my experience is limited in this world, but um, I, I'm certainly familiar with what my mother-in-law um, puts up with. There is so little thought given to making dessert exciting. It's just... Good God. Um, you're finally at an age where perhaps you don't feel the need to stay on that diet. Good mm -hmm. God, do something. Yeah. You know, I, it's funny you bring up desserts. I, so prior to my consulting business, I was, you know, senior executive in the business. And anytime I would walk into a kitchen and I saw a square cake, I would flip my lid because even something as simple as a cake, can be presented in a bunch of different ways that can just bring that wow. I mean, that's yeah. the, that's the the like coup d'état of the meal, right? That's the ending. How are you going right. to finish it with a bang? And so, just having a little bit of extra love and care in that dessert is so important. And you're right. That's that's kind of the the the, the end all be all for meals. I think a lot of times for our seniors. So yeah, you're dead on. So yeah. um, we've got about five or six more minutes, and so. One of the things that I'm always pushing the industry is look outside, right? Like what are restaurateurs doing? What are things that we can take from them and bring internally to make ourselves better so that we're competing with them and not each other? So as you look into kind of some of the trends and things that are coming over the next, you know, 6, 12, 18 months, what are things that you're seeing um, from your perspective that we should really think about for senior living? Well, I, I can deal with what the um, industry newsletters are predicting for the next year. I'm not sure, you know, how how much of this translates, but uh, apparently the free range organic chicken thing is really getting legs, hmm. um, and is according to those 
uh, in the know is going to play an increasing part in in customer purchasing. Um, there's uh, plant-based pastas are becoming a thing, which when you think about um, nutrition needs and an elderly population is not a bad way to, to sneak some, uh, some vegetables into someone's diet. Um, Whole Foods says this is going to be the year of dates. Okay. <laughs> um, I personally, I love dates and there's a lot you can do with them. Uh, they also say this is going to be a year for retro flavors. Um, things like mac and cheese, but um, maybe a little healthier than, you know, the box of craft stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, avocado oil is apparently having a year. I, I don't know how that really involves um, your folks because you're yeah. going to buy industrial size cooking oil no matter what. <laughs> Um, what's also interesting is that the general plant-based craze, the the fake meat, may be stalling. It, yeah. it, it may have hit the top of the roller coaster because um, it doesn't really taste like meat <laughs> unless you're using it as a as a pizza topping, and um, among the the hipsters who have pushed it there's a growing realization that it's about as processed a food as you can get. Yeah, it's definitely, there would be health concerns. It On one side, it's healthy because of the plants, but on the other side, it's so processed to get the flavor and everything right that, yeah, I've had some experience with it and uh, it's hit or miss on my radar for well, sure. Just as someone who likes to eat, I acknowledge if you don't want to eat beef because you you hate factory farming and you're going to make a difference. Uh, okay, don't eat beef. But if you don't eat beef, don't go looking for something that tastes like beef. It just it just seems like such an oxymoron to me. Yeah. You know, when when before vegan, when vegetarians would tell me that this tofu stuff tastes just like bacon, my answer was, but it ain't bacon. Dude. <laughs> you know, if you want to live on vegetables, that's great. Yeah. Enjoy the flavors and the I mean, you can you can live very well on as long as you get enough legumes for protein. But yeah. I, I'm not a big fan of fake anything. So yeah, no whole fresh, you know, unprocessed yeah. is best most definitely the way to go. So um, it, I want to ask you one last question. Um, yes, and this is a question that when we connected is one of the ones that you um, you, you you recommend. Um, it's about the Americanized versions of ethnic cuisines. Um, mm -hmm. Are they valid or should we try and get authentic dishes? What's your take on they're, that? They're incredibly valid. They are cuisines. I mean, General Cho's chicken is a lovely diet-busting uh, indulgence that bears no relationship to the original General Cho's chicken, which was in fact is a great documentary it's also a book in search of general cho where um the author tracks down the chef responsible for the dish and he's appalled by what it's become but the fact of the matter is these are extremely legitimate look look food in every country continues to evolve right. one of one of the most popular dishes among young people in china these days is scrambled eggs and tomatoes made in a wok 
but you know, so when you say authentic, that that's that is not a favored word among folks like myself who are interested in where food comes from and and what it becomes. Um, yes, I, I prefer the term as eaten in. Food as eaten in China today is different than Chinese American cuisine. Uh, I went to a food hall in Flushing, Queens, uh, which was uh, I was taken there by a couple of Chinese born students where each booth was fresh made um, uh, dishes as served in China. And some of them were um, uh, identifiable, similar, such as um, uh, buns or, or dim sum. But much of the food was was something that most Americans, frankly, would be stupidly too afraid to taste. Yeah. Like, um, you know, tripe, artery, kidney. Um, and the dishes made with, with those items are fantastic. And increasingly, you can find... Chinese food as made in China, um, certainly on both coasts, as the number of recent Chinese immigrants here with buying power, professionals, has increased to the point that you can make a good living selling food to Chinese expats um, that is aimed at their tastes as opposed to Americans. But I'll tell you something. If if you can simply um, put your fear in the corner and and go eat some things, um, you'll have a remarkable experience. I was recently taken to. We have a, a cousin who works in China a lot and knows his Chinese food. And there's a place here in uh, New Jersey that he likes that he says is pretty close to what you'll get over there. And we were eating with him recently and ordered Sichuan tripe and a tongue now most americans would run from the table yeah. i gotta tell you something the variety of textures and the intensity of flavor in that dish will just blow your mind it's yeah. it's just so the answer is yes food as made in other countries is wonderful when consumed as food from other countries chinese american any evolved ethnic american cuisine in my opinion is completely legit awesome well, David, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your, your expertise and your knowledge uh, and the background uh, of everything. Uh, how can we follow you? How can we stay on top of all of your, your goings on? Tell us how to do that. Uh, Food Americana has a Facebook page and an Instagram page. And if you want to reach out, I'll answer. If you want to see what I'm up to, I post not as often as I should, but I do. <laughs> Um, and I'd love to hear from anybody who wants to say hi. Perfect. Well, David, thanks so much. And, uh, we will tag all that in the show notes. And so, uh, I appreciate your time today here on tips from Trestle. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. So there you have it. Another one in the books. Thanks again, everybody for listening. Please follow, like, and subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Tips from Trestle. You can also learn more about the work I do by following me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and even TikTok. And be sure to check out Trestle Hospitality Concepts at www.trestlehospitalityconcepts.com. I'm your host, Aaron Fish, and this has been another episode of Tips from Trestle. <laughs>